All right. Why don't you turn to the book of Haggai? Haggai, if you have uh, Matthew, that's the first book of the New Testament. Just go left, three books. You're at Haggai. And the message is entitled, God Hears and Sees Everything. Uh, have you ever seen a dog that just eats and lays around? And, you know, he lays around and people come over and put their head over the fence or the door. And he just kind of lifts his head, but he won't even bark. This was the picture of the people of God in the days of Haggai. Complacent and uncommitted to God. The message of Haggai is to the people of God because their indifferent apathy had just grabbed the whole of them. And it's characterized by three important things. Let me read our text here. Haggai chapter 1. He says, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, The people say, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, for yourselves, to dwell in your panel houses in this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put him into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the temple. And I'm, that I may make, take pleasure in it and be glorified. Thus saith the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts, because my, of my house that is in ruins, while you, every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds the fruit. For I call for a drought on the land, and the mountains, on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. The message of Haggai to the people of God about their indifferent apathy is characterized by the following three things. First, we have the courageous prophet Haggai in verse 1. Second, we have the carefree time of Haggai that we'll look at the history to put it in the historical back on the perspective. And then thirdly, the complacement um, people um, are confronted by Haggai, and that's verses 2 down to 15. 
Let's begin with the courageous prophet Haggai. Verse 1. Notice the man Haggai was a man like any other man. We get so caught up in thinking that God uses perfect people and some of these guys were just so far above us or unlike us. No, they were just like you and I. Fallen men and women. No different. Listen to the words in the second year of Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the Gentile king was Darius, Hystaspus, 521 to 486. We're coming down in history, okay? This is the date. The king of Persia, not to be confused with King Darius in the days of Daniel. Completely different. Now, the date is September the 1st, 520 B.C. Remember the Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon began the times of the Gentiles. He was the head of gold. God showed Pharaoh, I'm not Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, the image, a great image, head of gold, Babylon, absolute ruler in Daniel 2, 23. Jesus speaks about the time of the Gentiles that it runs all the way till the rapture of the church in Luke 21, 24. The Gentiles are in control. The kingdom of Persia was the second, the chest and the arms of silver. Each metal degrades, it's inferior, and God declared the kingdom of the world that would come before they even took place, prophecy. The prophecies during this period are no longer dated then by the Jewish kings, but the Gentile kings. But the months are still based on the Jewish religious calendar. April is the first month in the Jewish calendar. You have two calendars in the Jewish. You have the civil and the religious calendar. April is the first month, and that's what it's dated for. So, about 18 years had passed since Cyrus had decreed the first return in 538 B.C., the fulfilled prophecy of bringing them back from the captivity. Jeremiah 25, 12 records that. Ezra 1, 1 also confirms this. Now, notice the man Haggai was given a message from God. The phrase, the word of the Lord in all capital, that refers to the divine revelation of God. The mind, the will of God, made known to man to communicate to other individuals. That's the way God works. These were normal human beings that were called out. The word Lord, Yahweh, is a covenant. The covenant title of the covenant God. The one who had brought them out of Egypt. The one who had led them into the promised land. The one who put them in the captivity. The one who now brought them back. And the instrument God chooses to reveal his word is indicated by the statement came to Haggai, the prophet. Once again, we have studied many of the major prophets, the majority of the minor prophets. Haggai is one of the last uh, three. And the word Haggai or the name Haggai means festive or feast. Some speculate that he might have been born on one of the national feasts. It's possible with the fact that he speaks from September to December, during the time when there were the major feasts. So maybe their, their speculation may have something to do with it. You have the Feast of Trumpets on October the 1st. You have the Feast of Yom Kippur or Atonement on October the 10th. And you have the Feast of Tabernacles October 15th to the 22nd. Now, some say Haggai is a shortened form of the word Haggai. Haggai. In other words, the last part of it is the Yah. And you have the affiliation with the name of God, which means festival of Yahweh. They're great names. Haggai is given a title. It is that of a prophet. The word prophet appears five times 
to mean that he is the spokesman for God. It, it's seen in verse 1, verse 3, verse 12, then in chapter 2, verse 1 and 10. Five times his words are said to be the divine of divine origin. In other words, these were not his words. And he makes this clear in verse 1 again, 3, 2, 1, 2, 10, 2, 20. So as you look to study the word, you always want to make sure whether it's the, it's the words of Haggai or the word of God. Okay, they're always the source in heaven. God is the one that's speaking through the man. Eight times he uses the formulas. Thus speaks or says the Yahweh of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. When that title is used, God is not in good favor with the people he's addressing. Okay? And he's never lost a battle. Right now, the people of God are not in a good state with him. That's why he's sending the prophet. You also have the phrase, says the Lord. So you find these two phrases in chapter 1, verse 2, verse 5, 7, 13, 2, 4, 11, 14, and 17. There's only two chapters in this book. That's it. 38 verses. Notice he was the mouthpiece of Yahweh for the people of God. This was his primary function. Sometimes people think of a prophet, his primary function to reveal future things. No. The Bible says a prophet's primary function and response first was to be the mouthpiece of God. The kings, the priests, the people had gone astray from God. So God would raise up a prophet apart from the kings and the priests to call back the people of God. That's the primary function of a prophet. And often they would be killed for that. A courageous man. When this comes to Haggai, he's not confronting people that are friendly right now, okay? Whenever you have to deal with anybody, whether it be your son, your daughter, your wife, your husband, or a friend, or a family member, you know, the first thing is, well, who do you think you are? Your first response is not, well, I want to thank you for just rebuking me. That's not your first thing. Okay? And then secondary, they would sometimes give future predictions. But the primary is to be the mouthpiece of God, to call people back to repentance, as we'll see. Now, he stood in a long line of imperfect men, fallen men, but courageous. Because, again, they had to know that they were called and anointed by God. Because the prophet had to be 100% correct or they could stone him. Okay? There was no room for error. There was not, well, I think God spoke to me. What? Either he did or he didn't. And even as they knew and they proclaimed it, often they would be killed for their message because the people were hostile. It's one thing to speak to people that are kind and civil and you got, you know, I have it easy here. You guys, nobody's hostile. But what do we do in a hostile environment? You ever been there? I've been there. It's a whole different thing. Completely. Haggai is one of the 12 minor prophets. He was the 10th that spoke in chronological order. He's the first of the post-captivity minor prophets. There's three. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And we'll look at them in order as we finish the Old Testament. Now, he may have been born in exile, but he could have been born also prior to the captivity. This is 520 B.C. So if he was born in Babylon after the last siege of 586 B.C., he would be around 56 years old, I figured out. And then... If he was four to eight years old before that last captivity siege, then he would be 60 to 64. If he was taken from the first one just at 20 years, then that would make him uh, 80 and then the other one's 84. Yeah. 
Yeah, it would be 76 and, and 84. So, I mean, somewhere in there. But it's possible that he might have been real young because in chapter 2, verse 3, he's going to say, uh, those of you who saw the glory of the first temple and comparing it to the meager state of this one. So it's possible. We're not sure. Now, the man Haggai, notice, was to declare the prophetic message to two individuals. In verse 1 here. The first person is Rubabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah. The name Zerubbabel means sown in Babylon, indicating that most likely he was born in Babylon, in exile. The books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther complement this book because they're at the same time. And the book of Daniel also helps us out. So you should read those books. They're not that long. And um, the lineage of Zerubbabel is said to be known as the son of Sheltiel, which means I have asked of God. These are great names. The genealogies record Padiah was his father and Sheltiel his uncle. So how do we reconcile those things in 1 Chronicles 3, 17 through 19 and Deuteronomy 25 and Jeremiah 22, 30 says he would be childless. How do we reconcile these things? It could be that by comparing those things that this was a, a livid marriage. In other words, according to Levitical law, we remember that if a, a, a man had a wife and he died childless, then his brother was to take his wife and the first son he would have would be according to the name of his brother so his name would not be, be wiped out. So literally, your dad would be your uncle and your dad. Now, we're not talking about banjo baby. We're talking about, you know, delivery. There's a different law, okay? It's a little different here, okay? So... Again, we try to make sense with what we have, and we have to search the scriptures, and that's a very possible possibility here. Now, Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiachin, also named Coniah. And Coniah, or Jeconiah, because some of the kings have two names, he's a descendant of David through King Jehoiakim. Remember, had Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and then Zedekiah, okay, when we studied Jeremiah. And so examining all these things, so you have here the kingly line. It's important they're coming back. The Davidic line is here. Now, Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah. And governors are so important because they look after the good of the people to make sure that there's not corruption, that make sure that people aren't taking advantage of others. And so good leaders are so important. Uh, fathers, you are the head of your home. Your son, your daughter is looking to you. Moms, you, while dad's gone, you are there as, God, as God's representative through your, your uh, husband. And you're both there to be one and to lead your home by the word of God. Your children are, are looking, they're listening. Um, he was the one responsible for all this and he was anointed by God to do so. And he was appointed by Cyrus in 537 BC, Ezra 5.14 tells us. But God was in control. God was doing all these things. He was acting. Now, the second person is Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And the name Joshua, as you know, is a contraction of Yahweh Shua, Jehovah's salvation or Yahweh's salvation. And the name Joshua in the Hebrew, when translating to the Greek, it's Jesus. Both of them mean Yahweh is salvation. The angel came to Mary and says he will save his people from their sins. Emmanuel, God with us. The name Joshua is son of Jehozadak, 
which means Yahweh is righteous. Great names. Great names. He was the grandson of Hilkiah, the high priest, if you remember. And they found the scroll in the temple. The son of Sariah, the high priest. And so Joshua identifies here, uh, he's identified as the high priest, a long line of high priests, and yet he had never officiated as high priest until now. Remember when we studied Ezekiel, Ezekiel was in the priestly line in the order, but he could never officiate because he went into captivity and God made him a prophet among the people while Daniel's in Shushan the palace. Okay? But yet, then God took Ezekiel through a virtual reality, through the spirit, through the temple. <laughs> and showed him all the corruption of the altars and everything. So his line is long. You can find Hilkiah and also his other, Sariah, in First Chronicles 6.15. That's why the genealogies are important. People say, ah, oh, where did God put this here? You know, and people think that God put all those names and everything else. So when you can't sleep, you can turn to it and you can fall asleep. No, it's not that. And so you can compare the accuracy of God's word. And how he puts everything together. And so you have the descendant of King David, the line of David. But you also have the line of Aaron, the king and the priest. Very, very important here. Spurgeon said, a man said to me, can you explain the seven trumpets of Revelation? Spurgeon says, no, but I can blow one in your ear and warn you to escape from the wrath to come. Another says, can you tell me when the end of the world will come? He said, no, but I can tell you how to be prepared for it, that you need not be afraid of it when the time comes. I can urge you to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior so that you can wait with it. With holy joy. That's why the proclamation of God's word is so important, ladies and gentlemen. If you've been a Christian for a long time, be careful you don't become complacent or indifferent. Oh, I already know that. I already heard that. The day that you stop smacking your lips for God's word, you are in trouble. When you do not desire God's word, Job says, I esteem God's word more than my daily substance. You stay away from God's word and it won't be good. It just won't. How often we have studied about these courageous men and women of the Bible, noting that they were just like us. It's just that we're up at bat now. We're at this historical time. Every Christian occupies a certain period of history. This is ours. I don't like it, but we're right on schedule. I just don't like the schedule, but it's okay. Every Christian has a set amount of time to live. You know, when I first came to the Lord, I was 23, and I figured, okay, I'll live to be 60 years old. So I just rounded off 20. Uh, I'm gonna, you know, I threw away. In the next 20, I'll, Lord will teach me how to be a Christian and grow and be a father and a husband. And then maybe the last 20 years, God will use me effectively. Well, I'm 67 this month. So when I turn 60, I trimmed it out. I go, okay, now I go to 70. So I trimmed it up in threes, now to 70. In three more years, I've year 70, I'm going to put it down to five, and I'll put that in two years. Because that's the reality of it. Are you planning your life? What is your goal? What are your priorities? 
It's very important you live in reality. I don't have no death wish. But every one of us is going to die, some younger than others. Now, I could live to be 95 or 105, God help me, but I don't think God help anybody who's around me then, but, you know. Um, every Christian has to deal with the culture and the people around them. You never let the culture set the agenda. You set the agenda by the word of God. God sets the agenda. God's not here to transform culture. He's here to transform people. Every Christian has to deal with this. And every Christian is called and endowed with certain gifts of the Spirit of God to serve the body of Christ and to reach the lost through the Word. Listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians four sixteen and 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen um, are not seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. And so we live with this reality. I mean, we all start out like grace. We end up like raisins. I mean, that's the reality of it, you know? Sometimes people come to me and say, oh man, you, you haven't changed. I go, did I look this bad 20 years ago? <laughs> Let's get serious here, okay? The message is always the same, never changes. The source is always God's word. People today in the emergent church and other things, they're looking for this new thing by experience or changing the vocabulary and reinterpreting and trying to redefine the Christian and the church. Get away from them. Reprove them. Give them the word of God. But do not be sucked into that black hole. The standard and authority is always God's. The purpose is always to benefit God's people. Get them in line with God's word. The glory is always God. Can you handle that? The problem is we want the glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we, do, we have this treasure in this earthen vessel that the excellence may be and the power may be of God, not of ourselves. This vessel, for God to be seen, must be broken. We get so enamored with the vessel, we start identifying God with the vessel. You must separate the two. And yet God is using the vessel. The vessel is not God. The problem is not God. It's the vessel. The people we are to minister to with the will of God. Is that the direction of God? As you fellowship, as you read, as you study, as you ask Him to direct and guide you, those that are not saved and are hostile. We live in a very peaceful nation to an extent, but now it's getting kind of funky. All right? We just read about this stuff. Okay? The natives are restless, and Christians are a target. So you better be loaded up with spiritual ammo. Those who are saved, to instruct them, to encourage them. Those believers that are in sin, out of fellowship, that you confront them, you pray for them. You call them back. Not worry about what they're going to think about you. Jeremiah 
1, 6 through 9. Then said I, O oh Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go, and all to whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my mouth, my words in your mouth. I've had the privilege to preach and teach the gospel for 40 years in full-time ministry, 43 since I've been born again. And I've seen people come and go. I've seen people get so deceived, people that were used by God because they didn't stay in the Word of God. You must abide in Christ Jesus. You must stand on God's Word. You must be so careful with your flesh and everything else. The world will give you every permission in every way. So this was the courageous uh, prophet Haggai. Are you courageous for the Lord? For your son, for your daughter, for your wife, for your husband, for your dad, your mom, your friends? Or, or do you cop out and say, well, you know, I don't like confrontation. Well, that's a cop out. You see somebody drowning in a pool, you say, well, I don't like water. Really? No. Out of love and compassion, you warn them, you pull them out of the fire. Notice now comes the carefree times of Haggai, so we understand the historical context of this. The prophetic return to Jerusalem by the Jewish remnant from Babylon had taken place after the decree of Cyrus, 536 to 37 B.C., the prophecy and record of being fulfilled is given to us by Jeremiah uh, 25, 12, 29, 10. Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, very clearly fulfilled. They had gone into captivity according to God's word. They had now come back from captivity according to God's word. The leading man was Sheshbazar, the Babylonian name for Zerubbabel who returned with the first captives, numbering about 49,897 in 536-37. The book of Ezra, chapter 1, verse 8, 11, 2, 2, and other verses in the book tell us. Very exact. Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah, Joshua the high priest of Jerusalem. God is using these two individuals God will use you if you yield yourself to Him. God is the one who directs and guides people. And those that hear, God sends. But not everybody hears or responds, okay? God does not force you to serve Him. God does not force you to be saved. God does not force you to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell if you want to, but you don't have to go there. Jesus died for you. He took your place. That's how much he loved you. The purpose of the return was to restore the national life of Jerusalem that centered on the temple, sacrifice, and worship. Ezra chapter 1, verse 5 through 11 is very, very clear. They were out of fellowship with God because of sin. God put them in captivity. God is now working them, them all over again. The people contributed for the work as Ezra and others uh, record for us, um, Cyrus had given all the contributions of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken in. I mean, God had gone before the people of God as he says he would. 
Now, the progress since the return was exciting and encouraging. Seventy years, now they're going back. The people had built the altar, made the sacrifices, and celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles um, in the seventh month, Ezra 3, 1 through 7 tells us. They built booths according to the Feast of Tabernacles to demonstrate their grateful their great, uh, gratefulness to God for providing in the wilderness. And they made sacrifice according to the law. So they were now in line with God all over again. But the people, two years after their um, coming, then they appointed the Levites and they finished the foundation of the temple and worship was expressed in an incredible way there in Ezra chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. Have you ever been away from home for a long time? And when you come back, you have a deeper appreciation of what you have. Some of you guys, you went in the service, you went overseas, you went to war, and you spent Christmas and Thanksgiving and your birthday and your parents' birthday, and you didn't know if you were going to come back. And when you came back, it was a whole different perspective. All worked together, all responded. The older men wept over the inferior glory of the previous temple while the young men were rejoicing there in Ezra's time. Because as old men will say, ah, the old days. And sometimes we make the old days better than they were. But I'm not interested in what God's done in the past. The past only helps me to be assured that God will work in the present, but not how he will work. What's been your conclusion? This is the first Sunday of two services instead of three. What's your conclusion? Is Pasadena dying? <laughs> or is this a new work God's doing? I'm glad God has done. I had the privilege for all those years. But I'm interested in what God wants to do now. In you and through you. This is not about me. This has nothing to do with me. If you would realize how little I have done all these years. Absolutely nothing. God has done it. I am more stupefied than any of you. Trust me. So I want to be in the middle of God's will. I want to see God... Numbers mean nothing to me. If you're impressed by numbers, go find a big church. Numbers mean absolutely nothing. Doesn't mean that big churches are not right with God. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we get caught up by those things so often. That should never be the case. Never. The problematic opposition since they returned, you remember, was constant. The Samaritans wanted to be part of the building, but they were not allowed because their genealogy was impure. So they became adversaries at the building of the temple. False accusations were made to the, uh, the king of Persia, Ezra 4. They attempted to discourage the people of God in the work of God. Your friends, your loved ones, people that don't know the Lord, they'll try to discourage you to be in the work of God. You decide to get involved with the work of God and you're going to have super warfare. They attempted to frustrate their purposes to fulfill the will of God. The most important thing in your life is the will of God. I am here for two reasons. To prepare you how to live life and to prepare you to meet Jesus Christ. I'm not responsible for it. I don't live your life for you. I've got enough problems with my own life. We're here to pray with you guys, direct you, and guide you, but you look to the Lord. He will be faithful. Remember, they accused them of planning to rebel against Artaxerxes and to 
uh, escape taxes and to dishonor the king. They were false accusations. And people will say different things about you. Listen, you have to let things go. You have to have a good ear and a deaf ear. A blind eye and a good eye. I qualify in one aspect. Okay? <laughs> you know, hear everything, but don't pay attention to everything. See everything, but you don't have to do something about everything. Wisdom from God. The work had ceased for 16 years, and the people became indifferent, complacent, and, listen, materialistic. Ezra 5 1, Ezra 6 14. We're going to see it here. The problem sometimes with the people of God is that they do not resist the attacks of the enemy enough. They merely just give in. See, the only way you and I will know full resistance is when I resist and not give in at all. Then I will know the full attack of that evil against me. If I give in, I never realize how strong that opposition is. The outcome of idleness is self-absorption and spiritual decay, always, without exception. Ladies and gentlemen, I've seen godly, godly men and women go by the wayside. Year service. Never say never. All the apostles, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Everyone said, is it I? If you think I would never... You're a good candidate for it. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Zechariah also mentions Haggai being his contemporary. As Zechariah began his prophecy in November of 520 B.C. Just two months after Haggai's first prophecy here in chapter 1 verse 1. So they're contemporaries. They're mentioned in Ezra here and in both all three books. Now, the present time of Haggai was to command the people to repent from their complacency and lack of commitment to continue the work of God. God called Haggai, Zechariah, to stir up the nest by rebuke, exhortation, and promise. We find it in uh, Ezra again, 5, 1, 6, 14, and here in the verse 1. God gave Haggai four prophetic messages delivered in four months, September to December of 520 B.C., now, his whole ministry was fulfilled in four months. Like I said, I've had the privilege of ministering for 40 years, 43 from the time I was born again. That's a long time. But it goes like that fast. Four months, it's done. What if God has only four things for you to do and they're in the first year of your being a Christian? And you miss them. Wow. See, only you can know what God wants you to do. Not me. The first message, September the 1st, verse 1. The second, 21st day of October, chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. The third, the 24th day of December, chapter 2, 10 through 19. And the fourth, the 24th day of the same month, December, chapter 2, verse 20 to 23. Four messages. Now, God divided his prophecy in a twofold division. Chapter 1, the stern rebuke to the people of God. God rebuked his people for their spiritual compromise. For indifference and complacency regarding the building of the temple. Very clear. Verse 2 will show us that. And for being overly concerned and absorbed with their own expensive homes while God's house was in ruins and neglected. Chapter 1, verse 4 will tell us that. Again, nothing wrong with a house, a car, money, or clothes or anything. That's not the issue. 
The issue with that becomes a priority. That's what you live for. That's what you're seeking for. That's what you're putting before the Lord. That becomes a problem. We must always remember that the present work of God that he's doing is the most important, the most valuable in our lives. Always. For not pleasing him and glorifying him is grievous to him. We're to please him and to give him all the glory. Secondly is the sound exhortation to the people in chapter 2. God exhorts his people in their spiritual commitment. They're not to compare the present work of God with the past. They, they, it would hinder it. Chapter 2, verse 3. So I'm glad what God's in the past, but I don't compare things. Okay? I want to move forward. Very important. They were given two messianic promises. In chapter 2, verse 7 and 9, the future kingdom temple, the millennial kingdom. And the future part Zerubbabel will have in the preparation of the kingdom, which is interesting in chapter 2, verse 21, 23. Zechariah also mentions it in chapter 4, 9 through 14. They were to be holy and receive God's blessings, chapter 2, 14 and 19 says. He's calling for repentance. Get back in line. Get right with God. You see, God wanted the people to acknowledge the authority of God and repent. 39 times the name Yahweh appears, all capital letters, Lord. The phrase, thus says the Lord, appears 26 times in the 38 verses. The phrase, the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, appears 14 times in these two chapters. The accusation is stated twice. Consider your ways, exposing their self-absorption. Though they had returned to the land, they had not returned to the Lord with a complete heart. You come in the church always, but your heart's not here. God sees and hears everything. You go on through the motions, but there's no emotions. There's, no, there's, there's nothing there. It's just you go through it. Husbands go through motions. They've lost their love for the Lord. Then they lose their love for their wife and vice versa, right? Because you're no longer cultivating. It's just mechanics you're going through. Your heart's not there. Your heart's not there in church. Your heart's not there with the Lord. Your heart's not there with your family. Well, then what's going on? You're open for destruction. Nothing good comes of it. Nothing absolutely. Then Haggai answered and said in chapter 2.14, So is this people... And so is this nation before me, says the Lord Yahweh. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer, there is unclean. Wow, what an accusation. Their blessing would come through repentance in the building of the temple and the harvest. Consider from this day forward, twice he says, in chapter 2, 15 and 18. Mark what I... What it's been before now, I'm going to bless you in your repentance. What a difference. What a difference. You know, there are window times that God gives to us. You know that. There's certain times that God gives to you, and once they're gone, they're gone. Time to go to school, time for this job, or whatever it may be. Once it's gone, it's gone. You can't get it back. Spurgeon put it this way. Listen for one moment to the uh, ticking of the clock. It is the beating of the pulse of eternity. It is the footstep. Of death pursuing you. Each time the clock ticks, death's footsteps are following uh, on the ground close behind you. Listen to the ticking of the clock as the um, pendulum swings back and forth. It says to uh, some of you, now 
or never. Now or never. Now or never. Will you trust your soul to Jesus? Don't say, well, tomorrow. Well, there might not be no next time. Might not be no tomorrow. Our lives like a vapor of smoke. God delivers, delivers us from the world, sin and death, ladies and gentlemen. We are excited knowing all that God has done. And he's cast our sins as far as east as the west, buried in the deepest ocean, and he remembers our sins no more. Psalm 103.12, Micah 7.19, Isaiah 43.25, and 2 Corinthians 5.17. Wow, what exciting is that? I remember when we first got saved in the early 70s. We were all young in our 20s, early 20s, and God had done a great work. We used to sing a song uh, in Psalm 25.7. David says, Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. David was excited that God had cleansed him completely. Are you still excited about that or have you kind of just trivialized that? We used to sing that song in the church all the time. It's a great song. Then we began to grow, develop and mature in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Some people are on fire and they serve the Lord faithfully with all their difficulties and all that. And they keep going. They're a great example. Others just refuse to reckon the old man dead. And they walk more in the flesh and in the spirit, refusing to grow, develop, and mature, and just add hurt to their lives and many others. These are choices we make, ladies and gentlemen. And still others fall into complacency. They don't want to offend people. The cares and the comfort of the world ensnare them. And yet, they go to church regularly. Every Sunday, never miss. But Jesus always gets the second best and the leftovers of their life. Because their heart's not there. This is for me. This is for me to examine my heart. It's not for me to just criticize. There's one who makes himself rich yet has nothing. One who makes himself poor yet has great riches. Proverbs thirteen seven. For what profit is of a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew sixteen twenty six. Don't be like that fool that says, I got so much stuff, I'll tear down my old barn and make new ones. And I'll say, soul, take ease of this. And God says, thou fool, today, tonight, your soul is required of you. And then to who will all these things be? Everything you have is going to have to be left behind. They're not even going to bury you with shoes. Wow. These were the carefree times of Haggai. Comes the complacent people confronted by Haggai. Verse 2 through 15. Look at verse 2. God rebuked the people by quoting the very words the people were saying about not being involved with God's work. It wasn't time to build the Lord's house, he says. The people there in verse 2 were allowing the culture to set the agenda of God so that they were waiting for a more convenient time. Maybe they were saying, well, maybe how do we figure this out? Do we figure from 606 or do we go back to 586? Where's the 70 years? And we think we're so chic and so clever in our little rationales, right? And, and we fall for it with others and all that, but God says, no, and the angels throw up. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, what isn't known here is a scandal in heaven. You know what I mean? Simple. The Lord of hosts is the speaker, the captain of the armies of heaven. When that title is there, he's fighting. He's ready to take action. He's looking for repentance, but if not, come chastisement. The people had become indifferent and complacent about spiritual things. Remember, Artaxerxes had ceased the work. Of the decree of Cyrus. False accusations by the Samaritans. 
But it didn't prohibit the building of the temple, only the city, Ezra 421 says. They could have built a temple, they didn't. So we can always excuse ourselves. Well, right now, you know, the Lord's telling me, I'm always, it's always amazing to me how people are so sensitive for God to call them out of ministry instead of in. You know, the Lord's asked me just to sit down right now. Really? But it took you three years to find out that God wanted you in. We're very selective. Everything's to my benefit. Welcome to the flesh. 100% beef. Not one good thing in me. None. Notice verse 3 through 4. God exposed the motives of the people and their self-centered comfort rather than concern for spiritual life. Though they did not think it uh, time for the building of the Lord's house, they did not hesitate to build their own house with luxury. Listen to his words. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your uh, panel houses and this temple to lie in ruins? The references to the panel here is to the extravagance of luxury of their own homes. While the ruined condition of the Lord's house. Jeremiah deals with the people of his day too. Jeremiah twenty-two fourteen. This is a form of sarcasm from God. It's a rhetorical question that has only one correct answer. No. If you say yes, you get an F in the study of Bible. It's no. Their comfort became their condemnation. The Samaritans didn't bother them to build their own houses. Only when they wanted to get involved with God's house. Wow. How illuminating. Solomon spent seven years in building the temple of the Lord. But he spent 13 years building his own house. Need I say anything else? Wow. Notice verse 5 and 6. God indicted them for just going through the motions. Having returned to the land... But not to the Lord. Literally, set your heart on your ways when he says there to consider. A call to self-examination of motives and deeds in view that the years were up and God wanted to work through his people. Verse 6 God pointed out their lack of abundance and wages in proportion to their efforts. They sowed much, they reap little. Verse 6. They have meager provisions. They are like people who put their money into bags with holes. Been there? Look at 7 and 8. God told them to build the house of God. God again told them to consider their ways a second time. In verse 7. God commanded them to go up to the mountains to bring wood and to build a house. In verse 8. It's not a suggestion. The proclamation was to go like the Great Commission. And you're going when you go, as you go. There's never been any doubt of going. The purpose was that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. We think God says, as long as I take pleasure and I'm glorified. No, 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 no. We've got it backwards. The temple was the center of national life. House of prayer. Notice 9 through 11, God revealed to them plainly that their meager provisions were due to him because they had neglected his house. He puts it together plainly. They don't get it. Look at verse 9. They failed to see their lack was related to their disobedience to God. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? 
says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, because of my house that is in ruin, while every one of you runs to his own house. Wow. He, he's ripping their heart open. Here you are. You say, oh, praise God with this and that. Hey, the Lord's good. Now he says, this is where you're at. Wow. They forgot what the word of God has said. Look at verse 10 and 11. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew. The earth withholds the fruit. For I call the drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Nothing works without God, ladies and gentlemen. You can work hard and do all you can. It will not yield what God can give to you. Absolutely not. Now, I'm not here to preach prosperity. You know how I'm, I'm not for that. Okay? But you work hard. You depend on God and God will bless you. God will direct and guide you incredibly. Verse 10 and 11 quote the Levitical uh, passages of, of cursings. Whenever you talk about God's chastisement, always read uh, Deuteronomy 28 for the curses and Leviticus 26. You have the blessings and curses in both areas. Uh, Deuteronomy 27 also. Always. God keeps his word. Now, this is a clear teaching in scripture where God uses a lot of this as a form of discipline chastisement through the book of Joel, Amos, Hosea. All of them, Micah will see it in Malachi also. As God chastens them by stopping the rains, the early, the latter rains, by not giving the substance. Notice verse 12 through 15, the people's response to God. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant obey God through the voice of Haggai. Great, praise God. This is what he's looking for. Not looking for excuses, justification, but just repentance. They acknowledged it was God's voice. They acknowledged Haggai was God's vessel sending him. But they didn't confuse the two. Too often people fall into the line where they start worshiping the pastor. The pastor's just the vessel. He used a jackass to speak through. We all qualify. They acknowledged God by fearing his presence. Underline that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge is wisdom. Proverbs 1, 7, 9, 10. Absolutely. You know what's happened in the church today? People lost the fear of God. They lost the fear of God. Notice the exhortation to assure the people was, I am with you, says the Lord, verse 13. This is one of the shortest messages in the Bible. Only seven words in English, four in Hebrew. Remember Jonah's message to Nineveh? Only eight words in English, three, five in Hebrew. The whole city repented. Wow. Look at 14 and 15. The enablement for the work is revealed to be God's doing. Don't miss this. God stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, and all to enable them to do the work on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God begins with the leaders, then the people. Ties them together. God did the same as he enabled those in the tabernacle. Solomon. All of the people, as we look at the scriptures, the date of their repentance notice is recorded. The 24th day of September, the people responded. 23 days after the first prophecy, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, when should their repentance been declared? The first second after they heard it. It took 23 days. Remember Pharaoh? Called Moses after the frogs. And Moses, when you want me to get rid of them, he says, how about tomorrow? Tomorrow? What you want right now? We rather live in sin a little longer, misery, than right now. Wow. 
Spurgeon had this to say about commitment. I wish that saints would cling to Christ half as earnestly as sinners cling to the devil. If we were as willing to suffer for God as some are to suffer for their lust, what perseverance and zeal would be seen in all sides? Wow. People often neglect the work of God for their own pursuits, work, convenience. They justify themselves through their own words, but it doesn't hold any water in heaven, ladies and gentlemen. God hears every word. He knows what is true. Whoever seeks to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for his sake, he shall preserve it. Luke seventeen thirty-three. Malachi puts it this way. Listen. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Malachi three sixteen. Is your name written there? Does God write your name down? Does he hear you brag about him, depend upon him, worship him, or just are complaining? Wow. A self-centered life produces very little in return on every level because the priorities are not biblical. Too many Christians live a life without biblical priorities. Some neglect church until their children are gone. I've seen this. And they pour all their life into their children, basketball, soccer, and all that. Nothing wrong with that stuff, but they don't take them to church. They don't. And then after their kids are gone and they're lost, now the parents come to church. God help you. God help you. Others neglect church until they get a home. The home becomes a priority. Others neglect church until they get out of debt. That's why you're in debt, because you're not committed to the Lord. You're buying what you can't afford. Matthew 6.33 But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Ladies and gentlemen, I have to live by these principles too. I am one among you. One just like you. No different. People are called to an appointed task to please and glorify God. What has God called you to do for him? I don't know. You do. I can't tell you. Where do you fit in the body of the church? Ephesians 5, 15, 17 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Oh, man, look at our days. They're bad. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. God sent her life promises God's blessing, ladies and gentlemen. Let me give you three verses from here. I am with you, Haggai 1, 13. Be strong, I am with you. 2-4. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. 2-5. What do you need beside this? Nothing. Just the will to obey. Wow. That's it. That's all I need. These were the complacent people confronted by Haggai. Wow. Haggai's message to the people of God about their indifferent apathy. Characterized by these three things, so important. It applies to us also, ladies and gentlemen. The courageous prophet Haggai. Thank God for him. The carefree times of Haggai. Be careful. They're in our days too. And the complacent people confronted by Haggai. They repented. That's what God's looking for. Who's he talking to? His people. Not the pagan. 
his people. Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts. We thank you for your grace and the work that you've done here. We pray, Lord, we will continue to depend upon you, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Whether you're over the internet or here, if God has spoken to you, this is your prayer of repentance. And he's going to forgive you and make you his child. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me all my sins. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. Give me a new heart. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.